So for the next few weeks, this series that we're going to be going through is going to be in the Psalms. Specifically, looking at some of the Psalms that are known as the penitential Psalms. That's what they're called. They're called the penitential Psalms. And the reason they're called the penitential Psalms is because within the Psalm, the author is either confessing his sin before God, asking for forgiveness, or asking for deliverance from his sin. In other words, there is repentance being put on display within the psalm. Therefore, they are called penitential psalms. You can hear the word repentance in there or penitence. That's why, they're, that's why they have the name that they do. And in total, there are about, well, not about, there are seven, although that that number is debated. But most theologians, most scholars agree on the number seven. There are seven of these psalms. They are Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Those are the psalms that are considered penitential psalms. Those are the ones that have confession of sin, asking for deliverance and things like that. We're not going to look at all seven of these psalms. We're only going to look at three of them. We'll look at Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and then lastly we'll look at Psalm 130. And the reason why I thought that it would be good for us to spend some time looking at these psalms is because a few weeks ago you may remember whenever we were going through the series created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In one of those sermons we were talking about repentance what repentance looks like, what it is, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. So we were talking about repentance, looking at what it is. And one of the things that I said about repentance is that it's not something that you just do once when you first become a Christian and then it's over with. Repentance is something that is ongoing within the Christian life, something that we do every day. Something that I didn't do, mainly because we didn't have time in that series, was give examples of what a life of continued repentance looks like. So that is the aim or the goal of this little short series here, to put examples of this before you so that we can see it, we can understand what repentance looks like, and we can practice it well as Christians in the Christian life. So that's why we're going to be spending a, a few weeks in these, these psalms. So you can go ahead, if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And if you're visiting with us and you do not have a Bible, you can just take the Pew Bible, which is in front of you, and you can read along with me in the ESV translation. There was a little bit of change that I made on which psalm that we started out with. Originally, I had planned on Psalm 6, but more time passed, and of course, I had more time to think about it, and so instead of Psalm 6, we're going to start with Psalm 51. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, let's read these verses together. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Our Father in heaven, we come before you again as we are gathered together this morning. Now as we open your word, we ask that you would come, that you would be with us, that you would be with us in our minds and in our hearts, that you would help us to focus them upon your word and what you have to say to us, Lord. What you are saying to us in Psalm 51. Lord, help us to be attentive to Your Word, to shut our mouths and listen and to obey with great joy and with gladness. Lord, put the example of what true repentance looks like before us. May we learn from David as he wrote this prayer to You and for the people of God long ago. And may we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the gospel shining through it, for it shines through on every page. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So there are five parts to this prayer that we just read by David that he makes to the Lord. And within each part of the prayer, there is a different aspect of repentance being put on display. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to look at these different parts of David's prayer. We're going to look at these five parts, look at the different aspects that he puts on display as he makes this prayer to God. Now before we dive in and look at these different parts, I just want to spend a moment talking about the background of this psalm. It's a very familiar story. You can look at it there in the heading where it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Like I said, very well-known story. It is a story of David whenever he committed adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. And I'm sure you have all heard it at least once, if not multiple times in your lifetime. And you know it very well, possibly. But for the sake of just feeling the weight of David's prayer, I just want to summarize it before you. And if you would like, later on, you could read the whole story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It's where the whole story is accounted. So in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we are told that at one point in David's life, during the spring of the year when kings usually go out to war, David stays home. He doesn't go. So you have David at home while the rest of Israel's armies are out fighting the battles and protecting the kingdom. And while David is at his home, he is walking on some porch or balcony that overlooks the city. And while he's kind of just strolling back and forth, he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba who is bathing on her roof, which was normal, I suppose, back in that day. She was cleansing herself. Well, David sees her, and he sees that she's very beautiful, and he's interested in her. And him being the king, you know, he can 
he can do whatever he wants. And so he sends his servants to go and inquire about this beautiful woman that he has just seen. And they return and they say to David that, or they say, is this not Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah, one of the soldiers who's out there fighting where David should be? But even though they tell him this information, he still sends for her, he takes her, and he sleeps with her. He commits adultery with her, and then after he does what he wants with her, he sends her back to her home. And then a little time passes, and she sends back to David, and he says, she says that, I'm pregnant. Oh boy, you know, now David has something that he needs to cover up because, you know, at some point Uriah is going to come back from the battlefield and all of Israel is going to find out about his sneaky business that he's been up to. Well, David conjures up a plan to make this all go away. He sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who again is out there fighting where David should be. He sends for him, and David tries to get him drunk so that he will go to his house and sleep with his wife. And then David could say, it's his baby, not mine. Except for the fact that Uriah is an honorable man, and he doesn't want to go and to spend time with his wife or to sleep with her while the rest of his comrades and his buddies are out on the battlefield fighting. And so he refuses to go to his own house, and he just stays on the steps of the palace. And so finally David realizes that his plan is not going to work, so what he does is he writes this letter to Joab, who's the commander of the army, telling him, I want you to put Uriah where the hardest fighting is so that whenever he's out there, he gets killed. And so he gives this letter to Uriah. He carries it to the battlefield. You know, he doesn't know what it says. He gives it to, to Joab. And Joab does what he's told. He puts Uriah on the hardest part of the fighting. And he dies. And then David takes Bathsheba, you know, as if he was doing a commendable thing. You know, Uriah just died. So I'm going to take Bathsheba and I'm going to make her my wife, you know, to comfort her in her time of loss. And now everybody thinks that, you know, this is, you know, my child in a good way, that I didn't commit adultery with her. There's just one problem. They, um, the Lord saw everything. And within the story, after David seems like he's gotten away with it, you read, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And so then the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he tells Nathan, I want you to go to David, I want you to tell him the story about a man who had one sheep and another man who had many sheep. And the man who had many sheep had a visitor come to him. But he doesn't want to kill one of his sheep for his guest. So he goes to the man who has one sheep and he takes his one sheep and he kills it and he feeds his guest with it. Well, David hears this story and he becomes furious and he says, let's get that man. He deserves to die and to restore what he's taken. And in a very dramatic way, Nathan points at David and he says, you're the man, David. You're the man. And David is cut to the heart and he says, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against Him. And so, at some point in that event, David writes this prayer in confession and asking for deliverance in repentance before God. So that's where this psalm comes from. So as we're going through it, I want you to just keep that in mind so you can just feel the impact, the weight behind it. And the first words out of David's mouth in the first part of this prayer is, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. That's what the first part of this prayer is devoted to. David appealing to the Lord for mercy. 
That is, do not give me what I deserve, which is for God to pour out His wrath and His judgment on David. That's what he deserves. But he, he asked the Lord, don't give me that. Don't pour out your anger. Don't pour out your wrath upon me. Have mercy on me, O God. And then in verse 2, David asked the Lord to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity and to cleanse him from his sin. David desires to be clean again. And this isn't a physical cleanliness that he's asking for. It's a spiritual one. You think about if you commit some type of grave sin, or it could be even a little sin. Most of the time it's just bigger sins. But if you commit some grave or big sin against God, don't you just feel like you, you're dirty in a way? You know, there's this dirtiness about you. This is what he's feeling right now. And he's coming before the Lord, make me clean again. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to feel like I'm stained. He asked the Lord, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then in the second part of verse 1, the basis of which he asked for mercy and he asked for cleanliness is not his own self, but it's something about God. Look there. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. And then, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The characteristics that are in that verse come from where? Exodus chapter 34 where God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and told Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's where these characteristics of God come from. So that's where David's making his appeal. Not that I have anything good to bring before you that makes me worthy of forgiveness, but because of who you are, O God. So when you and I go before God seeking to be repentant of our sin, asking for mercy, asking to be clean, you don't say to God, I did this and this, so now you... Show mercy. So now you make me clean. It doesn't work with God. You have nothing to bring to the table. For us, on this side of the cross, you plead the works of Christ, and that's all you have. Like the hymn, The Solid Rock, I believe it is, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. That's your plea, like what David does here. According to your steadfast love in Christ and in the gospel, according to your abundant mercy, which He has accomplished on my behalf, please have mercy on me, O God, and cleanse me. And then the second part of his prayer, verses 3 to 6, David owns up to his sin. So the first part focuses on him asking for mercy, pleading for mercy. The second part of the prayer is devoted to David owning up to his sin, being honest about it. Verse 3, For I know my transgression, transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This is a man who has come face to face with the weight of his sin. And it's something that will not leave him alone. He says that it is ever before him. Constantly it plays before his eyes. Again, have you ever felt like that before? It could be a recent sin or it could be one from years ago. It's just there. (laughs) 
It won't go away. I can't put it out of my mind. It's this there. It's what David says here. My transgressions are ever before me. They're on replay. And it will continue like it's doing to David now. It will continue to crush you. It will continue to to just break you into pieces until you bring it before the Lord, you bring it before the cross of Christ, and you crucify it there. Until you do that, it will always be before you, and it will always almost cling to you and and just drag you down. And that's why David's doing what he's doing now. He's bringing it before God. Because he knows that if he doesn't, it will never leave him alone. The guilt will constantly crush him. And then verse 4, David understands that although he has hurt other people and, and sinned against them, his sin is ultimately against God and him alone. This is something that's kind of strange, because remember, think about the story that we were just talking about, the background of this psalm. When David sinned, he sinned against Bathsheba. You know, he possibly raped her. He killed her, her husband, Uriah, the baby, I didn't mention this in the story, but the baby that she had from their adultery was killed. And that's all on David. But yet he says here in verse 4, against you, speaking of God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How can he say that? How can David say that? You only, I have sinned against, what about all these other people? You sinned against them. You hurt them. It's not that David has forgotten about that part of his sin. He knows that he hurt other people. But what he realizes and what we must realize in owning up to our own sin is that what makes sin... Sin is not that you hurt yourself or that you hurt other people or offend them, but that you offend God. That that is what makes sin, sin. You've offended God. And we must understand that if we are to truly be a repentant people. Because if all you ever focus on is the horizontal view, you know, the people around you who you may have hurt, and you don't realize that your sin is first and foremost and ultimately against God and Him alone, then you will not receive forgiveness. Even if that person tells you that they forgive you. Your sin is first first and foremost against God, and so we must bring it before Him, own up to it in His presence, understanding that we've offended Him if we are to receive true forgiveness. And then something else that is strange, as David is owning up to his own sin here, it's in verses 5 and 6, is that he doesn't minimize his sin, but he intensifies it, which is what we would not expect. Because we tend to do what? We tend to minimize our sin. You know, if you commit a sin and somebody confronts you about it, the first thing that we usually do is, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I didn't literally kill her husband. I just wrote the letter and I I sent it to Joab. He gave the command. You know, minimization. Make it look as small as possible. Or we play the comparison game. You know, look what they did. Mine is not near as bad as what they did. You know, we minimize our sin in some way, but this is not what David does at all. Listen to what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, 
and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And thinking about his own sinfulness, David goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, I was born sinful. You know, from the very beginning, when I was in my mother's womb, I was sinful. Not because his parents had committed some sin and that's how he was born. David is just showing that from the very beginning of life, you and I have inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. So he's showing that, you know what, even before I committed this sin, I had this within me. Sin was there. And then the behold, you delight in in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I think what David is referring to there is that David being the king and also him being a prophet, God has shown him things that he hasn't shown other people. He has knowledge of God's Word and God's revelation that other people don't have. And so he is especially accountable to God. Like James says in his letter, not many of you should become teachers, brothers. Why? Because the more you know, the more accountable you are to God. The harsher judgment you will receive. So this is what David is saying here. This is how he is intensifying his own sin. Saying, look at me, look how sinful I really am. I was listening to another pastor handle this passage and something that he brought up that I thought was really interesting is that at this point and throughout the whole psalm, sex, sexuality, or sexual sin is nowhere in this psalm. It's nowhere to be found in Psalm 51. And remember, thinking about the story, this is what started it all, right? or what we think started it all. But David doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, sex was my problem. You know, I'm a man, I'm I'm attracted to beautiful women, and that's just kind of things just spun out of control from there, snowballed from there. He doesn't blame like some tendency that he has. He says that his own sinfulness which he was born with, inherited, is the problem. So you may be prone to sin in some way just because you know we're all different people, our personalities are different, and we gravitate toward different sin. You know, some people may tend to gossip, some people may tend to be like David and gravitate toward sexual sin, or there's a array of sins out there. But your problem is mainly not that. It's that at the core of your being, something is wrong. And it's you're a sinner. And that's what he's showing there as he owns up to it and he intensifies his own sin. He is coming before God and being as honest as he can possibly be in his confession. Do we do that? When we approach the throne of God seeking to repent, do we minimize or are we honest? The third part of David's prayer in verses 7 to 12 focuses on David seeking restoration and renewal. And this part of repentance is often misunderstood and also often abused. Because when many people think of repentance or when they seek to repent of their sins, this is what they think of and this is what they do. They confess their sins before God. They plead for His mercy, like we saw David do in verses 1-2. to But then, after they've done that, they go back to doing what they were doing before and then the process just gets put on repeat. Friends, that's that's not repentance. That is a misunderstanding of what repentance is, and it is an abuse of God's mercy. 
Look at what David says within these verses. Look at verses 7 and 9. We, we see similar language to, to verses 1 and 2, you know, asking God for mercy. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a type of branch, type of tree that the priest would use to, to sprinkle blood, to like cleansing. It's part of the Old Testament sacrifice rituals. Uh, whenever people would come, make sacrifice, atonement for their sin, asking for forgiveness, the priest would sprinkle blood using this, this type of branch called hyssop. And so he's asking God, you purge me with hyssop. You do the purging. That's what I need. And then verse 9, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. So you have that asking for mercy language there. But in verses 8, 10, and 12, we also see a desire within David to be restored and to be renewed by God. A desire to be different. A desire to no longer do what is displeasing to God but to do what is pleasing to Him. Verse 8, He says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me get to a spot again where I can be joyful, where I can be glad. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So you have David again asking for mercy in this process of repentance, but a desire to be different. So there is no going before God, asking for mercy, and then saying, okay, I did my part, now I'm going to return and just live how I was before. That's not repentance, because we said repentance is what? Turning from your sin and turning to something else, which in our case is turning to Christ. If you just constantly ask God for mercy and forgiveness of your sin, but just continually go back to it, you're only getting half of the picture. Now I don't mean to say that repentance is not a struggle. I mean, there are sins within our life that we constantly battle and fight. But there will be little bits of growth here and there. There is no asking for mercy and no change. No growth. No restoration. No renewal. Somebody who just continually pleads for God's mercy but then just lives how they want to. They're probably not a true Christian. And have misunderstood what it means to repent. And somebody may have taught them that. I mean, you think about uh, the, the Catholic religion. You think about Catholicism. You think about what their version in some spheres of Catholicism anyways of what repentance looks like. You know, you go, you sit in this booth, you have the priest there, you, you confess your sins, you know, you do penitence, you kind of quench God's anger, and you're good. And you can just go about your business, and then when you, you know, commit more sins, then you go back, and, you know, you just kind of repeat, repeat that process. That's not what it looks like. There is asking God for mercy, but then there is restoration, there is renewal, there is desire to be different, to be made new. Then we have verse 11. And I wanted to handle this verse last within this, this part of the prayer because it's a verse that is, has caused much confusion in the area of whether or not we can lose our salvation because of sin. Uh, the answer to that is no. You cannot lose your salvation for any reason. This verse does not teach that. Where David says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He does not mean that you can lose your salvation. Because, friends, if you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost it. 
I think John MacArthur is the one who I heard say that one time, and I, and I love that. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost it. Because the ability to keep your salvation is upon you. And you are very weak and, and fickle. But thanks be to God that our salvation does not rest upon us, does not rest upon me, it does not rest upon you, but it rests upon God and His ability to save you, which is totally sure. And you can have total confidence that if God saves you and that if your salvation weighs ultimately upon Him, that it can never be taken away. Here's another passage to consider, to, to be encouraged by. This is John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking here in verses 27 to 30. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, greater than you. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch you out of your Father's hand. Even you. So people who seem to walk away from Christianity or people who seem to lose their salvation... You know, we, we see people like that often. You may have somebody that walked in the Christian faith for years and all of a sudden they just kind of walk away and they, you know, they just act as if they were never a Christian at all. And that's because they weren't. People who turn from Christ, people who just walk away from the faith, they just prove who they were in the first place. As 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, the Apostle John writing there, he's talking about some false brothers who were once a part of their congregation. He says, they went out from us because they were not truly among us. If they were truly among us, they would not have went out from us. You cannot lose your salvation you will persevere because of God and His ability to make you persevere. So how are we then to interpret what David says here in verse 11? As he says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. One interpretation is, is that David in this verse is talking about an especial anointing that he had received from God to be the king over Israel. You know, in the Old Testament, God would sometimes pour out His Holy Spirit in special ways to certain individuals like David here, being the king of Israel. And so in this moment, He's saying, don't take that portion of your Holy Spirit away from me. Don't take that portion of your anointing away from me. And that's very possible that He's talking about that here. I tend to think that He's not just because if you remember that this psalm is meant to be sung by all of God's people, I mean, David wrote this psalm so that others could sing it along with him, and other people weren't the king of Israel. Other people weren't giving, given a special anointing from God like David was. So the way that I believe that we should take this verse is, is similar to other verses, verses where we have these these kind of strange expressions, like when we were looking at Psalm 42 a while back, and the psalmist said, Why have you forgotten me, O God? Knowing that God doesn't forget His people. It's just an expression though. He is putting into words what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and yet to live in a broken world still. Your salvation is sure. God will not forget you. He will not forsake you. But sometimes it feels that way. <clears throat> and 
And so you put into words how you feel. And this is how David feels. Don't forsake me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't leave me. Don't cast me off. You know, let me confirm that I am truly yours. I think that's how we should take this verse and and others like it. It's an expression he is putting into words how he feels within his heart. Because remember, we are beings with emotions. We're not just people who have rules and doctrine that we go by and that's just, you know, we walk the straight line and, you know, we never experience ups and downs and things like that. You know, we have emotions and they get put on display. Part four, David desires to worship in spirit and in truth once more. Verses 13 to 17. So David moves from asking for restoration and renewal to saying in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. In other words, when God restores David and renews him, it is then that his mouth will be opened and he will sing God's praises once more. Whether it be in the, in the assembly or to those who may not know God. And this is something that we'll look at further next week when we look at Psalm 32, that the, that the person who is forgiven, truly forgiven, is the person who can be truly happy. We'll explore that a little bit further next week. But for the person that doesn't truly seek Repentance, true repentance like we've been looking at. You know, the person that just seeks to go through the motions just to do it, to do it, to say that they did it. That person will not please God and their worship will ultimately be rejected. That's why David is doing what he's doing here. God, forgive me of my sin, deliver me, from my blood guiltiness, and then I can praise you rightly. Then you will accept it. Then it will be pleasing to you. If you just go through the motions, God will not be pleased with your worship. And yes, God is not pleased with some churches today who just worship in a hollow way. I know that's kind of hard to think about, but it's true. There are many churches, I imagine, that just go through emotions, go through the motions, excuse me, and they leave feeling like, you know, God is pleased with what they just did, pleased with what they just sang, but they just did it to do it. And then they return to their normal life and live how they want to. And God has just, whether they know it or not, rejected that worship. He's not pleased with it. And again, if you remember in the Old Testament, this is one of the reasons why the people of Israel were sent into exile. Because as God said, these people draw near to me with their lips, but they are far from me in their hearts. So may we not be like that. May we be like David where he says, Forgive me of my sin, truly. Help me to repent, to be different. And then, oh God, open my mouth truly so that praises can flow to you in a pleasing aroma. For you will not delight in sacrifice. This is verse 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Verses 16 and 17. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, O God, you will not despise. May we be a people of verse 17. Not that we should be a people who are sad all the time, you know, just just walking around moping. 
You know, that's not what he means when he says a, a broken spirit or a broken and contrite heart. But it's more along the lines of what the Apostle Paul says whenever he says that we are people who are sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. That's what it looks like to have a broken spirit, to have a broken and contrite heart. You have been humbled by your sin, but at the same time you can rejoice in God and what He has done for you. Constantly knowing who you are, what you deserve because of your sin, but yet rejoicing because in Christ God doesn't give you what you deserve. Christ is taking it taking it for you. In part 5, uh, the last part of the psalm, verses 18 to 19, David desires the good of all God's people. He says, Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burn offerings and whole barn offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So in the Old Testament, the the well-being of Israel depended upon the obedience of its people to God. If they were obedient and truly sought the Lord, they would prosper. And if they were disobedient and did not seek the Lord, they would be punished and would not prosper. So the point of what David is saying here in these verses was originally to show the people that they were all connected in what they did as, and they were all connected and what they did as individuals affected the nation as a whole. I'm going to say that again because I kind of jumbled it together though. So he's trying to show them that they are all connected and what they do as individuals affects the body as a whole. That's what, he's getting, that's what he's trying to get across here in these verses. So in a similar way, I mean, we're not Old Testament Israel, but in a similar way, what we do as individual Christians affects the church, the body of Christ, as a whole. How we reflect Jesus. And whether or not we are the light that we are called to be in the world. If we are a people who practice true repentance, like we've been looking at in this prayer, even in the midst of horrific sin, we will reflect Jesus well. And we will be the light, the bright and radiant light that we are called to be. If we don't, we will reflect Jesus very poorly. And we will not be a radiant light, but be a very dim light in the world in which we live. And that's something that we often don't think about, right? I mean, we often think to ourselves, well, this is me, this is my life, uh, this is something that I did, it doesn't affect you. But that's not true. Your sin does not just affect you, but it affects many around you, and it affects the body of Christ. So may we have that in mind as we seek to be repentant before God. It's not just about you, and it's not just about you and God. You know, me and God, what you guys are doing, I don't care. It's you, God, and the body of Christ in which we all share together. So may we be a people and may we be a church that follows the examples that have been given to us by David and ultimately by our Lord when we sin, let us go before Lord, go before our Lord for mercy, according to his steadfast love, having confidence that when we come to him, that we come in Christ through his work, he will be faithful to forgive. And as I close, I want to read from, from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The author of Hebrews writes this in in thinking about going before the Lord in in confession and asking for deliverance and in repentance. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Through the works of Christ, through the gospel, when you go before God, no matter what sin you may have committed, you can have confidence that He is eager, eager to hear you, to have you come to confess, and then He is eager to once again lavish His abundant mercy, His abundant grace upon you. And one more word, and then I'll close in prayer. If you have never done this before, if you've never gone before the Lord in repentance, if, if you're not a Christian, this, this is for you as well. Like I was saying, repentance is something that, that happens in conversion when you first come to Christ, and it's something that is continually done as you walk through the Christian life. So come to Him, be honest in your rebellion, in your sin, how you've rejected Him in the past. And as we just read, have confidence that in Christ He hears you and He welcomes you and He will give you new life for the very first time. And according to His character, He will keep you all the way to the end. Our Father in Heaven, we come before You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the example of David's prayer that we have uh, to follow and to live by in repentance as we as Christians practice this throughout our life. May we be attentive to Your Word. May we not think that we can just do this on our own and we don't need Your guidance. Lord, we do. We need it every day, every hour of every day, every moment. May we joyfully accept it May we humbly live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.